The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Scenes of Violence, Fire Engineering's blog talk radio. Um, This evening, I have... The wondrous, the amazing, the awesome. Stop, Dave Polikoff. <laughs> Stop it. We won't. We're not going to beat up the. We're not going to beat up the president, vice president, Clarion thing. We've done that enough. Yeah, it's on your show. Tune into Dave's show. You'll hear it. But um, for those that may not know you, Dave, would you do a little? Hey, this is me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David Polikoff and uh, I co-host uh, Politics and Tactics with uh, Frank Ritchie and Sam Villani for uh, Fire Engineering. Um, past presenter at FDIC, uh, work for Capital Fire Training, uh, doing uh, all different types of training from Incident Command all the way down to Engine Company Operations. And um, I, uh, I work uh, in Frederick County, Maryland. I'm assistant chief uh, in Frederick County, Maryland. I've been doing that for almost two years. I retired from Montgomery County after 34 years, um, failed at retirement. I, I only got a chance to do it for five days. And then and I got I applied and got hired in Frederick. And um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Uh, still still volunteer, been volunteering since I was 12. Still volunteer, um, fire department, third generation, um, Married up like all firemen do. We married up, and uh, that. Uh, uh, other than that, that's that's me. <laughs> well, and it's awesome because I love you, and that's 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 perfect. Um, so we met at FDIC years ago. The we'll skip what the introduction was, um, but we started talking back and forth. Uh, about different response platforms, different ways that you guys deal with violent senior response and working with the cops uh, in your area. Talked a little bit about my area and the night just kind of continued to roll from that. But you you guys have done, uh, you guys have done some pretty intensive collaborations with each other, the law enforcement piece and the fire piece. Speak to to what you guys have been been doing. Yeah, when I was um, when I was uh, working in Montgomery County at the time, I was a captain uh, at uh, at uh, Station Twenty Three, which is our uh, Rockville, one of our Rockville stations. And um, at the time, as Operations Chief Scott Goldstein, he was the uh, Deputy Chief Operations. He ended up being the Fire Chief for many years. He just actually retired, but he kind of called me. It was like out of the clear blue, and, and said, "Hey, I want to run something past you." He said, I'm thinking about uh, putting together um, a group, a company of firefighters that have uh, are the stations that have, you know, uh, 
BLS and ALS transporting capabilities, uh, ladder truck or tower capabilities and engine company um, capabilities. And we're looking at kind of uh, putting that shift or that, that to station together with the, um, the uh, SRT uh, police response, which is kind of like the, the uh, SWAT response um, for uh, in, when I was in Montgomery County. And uh, he's kind of going through it. And I said, uh, I said, well, I, I said, my station has, you know, an engine and a tower and a medic unit and an ambulance. And he kind of chuckled. He said, that's why I'm talking to you. And he kind of laid it out where, you know, we were talking about active shooter situations, um, mass casualty incident that involve police uh, uh, inter- intervention, um, hostage uh, barricade situations, things that are that have a potential to go sideways with either EMS or fire, um, and he kind of wanted to embedded is not the word, but he wanted a specific company or a specific department, all three shifts, to be a familiar face for uh, that special operations component for the police department. And uh, I told him, I said I thought it would be a, a really good idea. Um, you know, you know, the fir- first thing, you know, I asked, I said, I have to ask now because it's going to ask me, are we going to be armed? And he's absolutely not. And I said, okay, that's probably a good thing that uh, we're not uh, getting armed. Am I running a box? <laughs> not you. Not me. Um, so it was going to be more of, we were going to train with um, these guys uh, on the special operations part of, of the police department. And kind of, you know, get familiar with them, get to know them, kind of build this relationship, this trust, this bond, uh, them seeing the same officers all the time, um, get to know their equipment, they get to know our equipment. And uh, so we kind of arranged a meet and greet. I said, yeah, I think it would be pretty good. So I had a contact uh, on the uh, police side who I specifically uh, liaisoned with. And uh, so we kind of hammered out what did he want from us? And then what did we want from him? So I said, I think the first thing that we need to do is let's get together so we can all meet. Um, and and when you do that, we'll bring our equipment and you bring your equipment and then we'll just kind of look at stuff. So it's kind of like an open house for police and fire, but just for police and firefighters. Um, and it worked out really well. Obviously, a lot of the forcible entry tools and things like that they have, we we have in the fire service, same stuff. And we, we kind of talked about different techniques of using the forcible entry stuff. Um, and then uh, we kind of looked at their their uh, vehicles that they use, their Bearcats, and they have like it's almost like a rescue squad that has a bunch of uh, tools and, and things that they use uh, when they have to go into those those type of situations um, for whatever their callouts are. And then what he wanted from us was to talk about um, hose lines, um, our EMS capabilities, and what can we do or what can we offer them or teach them in the event of uh, fire, if an incident turns into fire, which, uh, which can happen. Um, so basically what I did is put a PowerPoint together about what an engine company is and all the, the equipment that it carries on there. And we met at our training academy. And for a full day, we just taught them how to hand jack or to stretch backstretch supply line from the fire engine to a hydrant or from the fire engine forward into like a hot zone, taught them how to advance attack lines, how to hold the attack lines, flow water, um, 
things that we can do undercover to to make sure that if it does turn into like a fire event, uh, we can keep it from spreading. We may lose a house, but we're not going to lose a block. We may lose, you know, a, an apart or a, a townhouse, a middle of the road townhouse unit, but we're not going to lose the whole row. Um, right. We had talked about, you know, them, you know, barricade situations uh, can turn into a fire situation. Um, so we, we kind of honed in on that. And that was about, uh, we did that for a few weeks. Um, and then when they started having their training, like they'd go up to their shooting range and they'd ask us to come with them, like just the engine and the medic unit as a standby in case something happened because it was live fire situation or live fire training. Um as fire as in guns, not as in lighting fires and shit, but uh, live fire training. So we built this bond, this trust, and we, we knew we started to know each other. Um, and then as they started to get call outs, um, they would automatically, if it was something that required an EMS unit or an engine or a truck or all units uh, from the fire department, they would dispatch the closest um, fire engine or truck company. They would go to the scene and stage and then, my station, station 23 would get alerted to go. And once we got on the scene, we would relieve that crew. They could go back to the station and then we would stay with them for the duration of the incident. So, you know, obviously when you're talking about these incidents, they can go hours, you know, it's not like just a working fire and, you know, a couple of hours in your bag, it can go five, six, seven hours. Oh yeah. For sure. and you could go into another operational period where the next crew coming in would have to come up and relieve um, so that's been going on since I would say, Oh, 2000 and 2007, 2006, 2007. And it's still going on today, even though I'm retired, you know, I promoted out of that station. They still are the, uh, the unit that goes with those, uh, SWAT call outs. Um, and, uh, they've, they've done stuff where we got into the active shooter stuff when that started to become a hot topic, uh, talk about how they would clear the building. They wouldn't tell us how they clear the building. Obviously we don't, they don't want to let that, those tactics out, but what they would create for us would be what we call warm corridors. So they would go in and secure an area, even though they're still searching for the assailant, they would secure an area where they could start bringing victims to that particular warm corridor. We could send our guys forward grab those patients, use their Bearcats, load them in the back of the Bearcats, and then take them to like a, a patient collection point area where we could start uh, trauma triage, things like that. Um, ultimately, we ended up getting um, uh, body armor. Uh, the battalion chiefs carry body armor on their vehicles now, I think enough to, to equip uh, five or six people. Um, the uh, So we were capable of working in those warm corridors um, once they got those set up and, and we could efficiently move lots of patients, uh, if it was, if it was a, a mass casualty incident, we could move those patients very quickly out of that warm zone. Anything that was in a hot zone, they'd pull them back into the warm corridor. We could take them, load them in the Bearcats or load them in that we would usually take the cot out of the back of the ambulance, take the, the, um, the, um, the locking mechanism in the back of the ambulance, take that out and we could start loading people in the back and, you know, not to sound cold, but almost like cordwood to get them out so we could get them to that, that patient collection point and then start that rapid triage. Um, thankfully we haven't, they, they have not had to use that, but, um, we were definitely, uh, 
prepared for that. And all this stemmed from, um, and you can look it up, we had a, a hostage situation with uh, explosives in the Discovery Building in downtown Silver Spring. And this was many, many years ago. Uh, you can look it up online. Um, and that's where they recognize right away there's a need to have an EMS component. Now, we have what we call SWAT medics. So they're actual police officers that are EMTs, some are paramedics. And those SWAT medics are specifically there for the police officers. Um, so, you know, police officer goes down, they're on that guy or gal. Um, if they come across a, a victim, they pull them back to the warm corridor. We start the, uh, the treatment, you know, rapid treatment and get them out. So um, that's where it all stemmed from. And, and, and like I said, it's been going on ever since. I think it was a really good model. I know there are some limited departments around the country that are doing stuff like that. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, make no mistake, we're not armed. We're not going in there uh, with with weapons or anything like that. We, we you know, we are, we are strictly like, like the MASH hospital. They're in the war zone, but they're not firing ammunition. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I think it's been pretty successful. We really built up a really good relationship with those guys. Um, we've had people, other jurisdictions ask us how it worked and, and, and how it works. Um, but like to this day, it's it's still something that's uh, that I think is is valuable. So you know, God forbid, if something does happen, we're we're ready for it to uh, to start that rapid triage, so we don't have people that are bleeding out uh, without medical care getting to them. We can get in there right away and get it out. Now, fast forward a few years, our incident commanders are now trained for um, that mass casualty incident, obviously, but they're also trained for that active shooter of how we're going to set up command. Um, how we can start to arrange the uh, the um, the triage, get that all set up by our protocol, but then how we know there's going to be warm corridors and that we can send um, units in there to start grabbing patients and bring them out so we can get an accurate head count. So we can call our, our EMRC, which is our emergency medical radio, um, to start calling out hospitals of here's how many patients we have and this is what we got going on and uh, that whole rapid triage in order to get them you know, from the incident to the, uh, the hospital door within that hour. I know I'm rambling on, but it's kind of it in a nutshell. No, I started taking notes. <laughs> um, I, there are a couple of things stand out. One, one of the big ones was how you initiated working with, working with law enforcement. It was kind of like a show and tell. You show me yours, I'll show you mine without a goal or an expectation laid upon it. I think as soon as we say, you need to learn, you need to go train with the cops or you tell law enforcement, hey, you need to go train with the fire guys. Instantly, it's like, eh. I mean, I think it, there's some pre preconceived thoughts as to how that's going to go. Right. Um, and I think it just takes you, it takes you down a path. It takes you down a path you ought not go down. And I think it's cool that you guys just got together and, hey, here's my stuff. Oh, there's your stuff. Maybe argue a little bit for, about a hooligan versus a halligan because you know the cops got hooligans and we're going to have halligans. Um, but I think that opens the conversation. It's safe. You're safe. It, it, you can be you. I can be me. And you go from there. Yeah, I, like you said, that, that relationship of, hi, Bob, I'm Ralph. 
hey Ralph, how are you? It's it's like that. It, it never, you know, when we first initially met, you know, it never felt like it was a, uh, you know, you know, who's in charge? I'm in charge. You're in charge. You know, type of deal. We know that if it's a, if it's a call out, and we're going in to actively get patients, we're we're keying on them. Where do you want us to stand? Where do you need us to be? You are in charge. You know, you you have the protect. You're protecting us. Once we get a hold of that patient, we're moving back. We're in charge of that patient. We're not in charge of that operation at all. Um, we're relying on them for them to provide us the cover uh, and the safety so we can operate in those warm corridors. And um, but uh, it it uh, the plan that we have uh, seems to work well. Now you know, I have got to give uh, um, Chief Goldstein uh, props. You know. Whether he thought of it on his own, he was talking to police officers, he was talking to the fire chief at the time. Um, but to come up with that idea of, you know, we need to have a more active role with the police officers without, you know, overstepping our bounds. Obviously, nobody's going to try to be in, in the front. You know, you, you got the firefighters like, yeah, we can be armed. We can have the helmets. We're going to go in there. We're going to shoot people and grab bodies. And it's, it's, it's nothing like that. It's more of, hey, you provide us you know, the safe area, relatively safe area. And, uh, and we'll do our thing. So now these police officers are, they're moving forward. They're not having to be distracted because somebody's bleeding, but still alive. And they're still trying to engage or find the suspect and engage the suspect or suspects. Um, they can grab them back real quick, get them to where we are and we can get them out of there. Um, reduce, reduce the, uh, the casualty footprint, but it, it never, to me, it never felt like, uh, you know, like, like a, uh, a chest pounding competition of, you know, who's in charge right away. If it's a police event, we're keying off on what that, uh, officer or that officer in charge needs. And I know you and I talked about this offline, um, you know, trying to find out who's in charge in the very beginning of these situations. It's not like the fire department. And we talked to these guys and they're like, yeah, the first officer on the scene is the guy that's in charge. You know, that guy could be, you know, private or, or, or whatever. He's, He's not a sergeant. He's not a lieutenant because they don't have, you know, sergeants, maybe one working per beat. Um, so trying to find that person that's in charge is difficult. Um, it's not like the fire service where the chief rides on the scene, turns lights off, turns his green light on, gets his board out and starts, you know, using his, his tactical worksheet. Um, so it's more of we're going to contact communications and say, you know, we're on the scene. What officer needs us? Do they? Where do they need us? Get more information. Are we staging? What do they need from us? And uh, usually, there's a staging area. If uh, if there hasn't been one established, that first in engine company because it's 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 a a violent situation or potential violent situation. We're staging. You know, more than a block away anyway. We're not going to the scene. It, it doesn't matter if there's bodies and active firefighting going on or active firefight going on. We're not injecting ourselves in the middle of that. We're not prepared for something like that. Um, so we're staging, but, uh, once they get in there, we got a great line of communications where they know they can call our, you know, our police and fire in the same building. They can call and and get us to where they need to be. Once we got an idea of what the situation is, that fire incident commander is the one that's going to be running the fire units and the EMS units setting up that, that, um, for potential, uh, mass casualty incident, but we're, we're not running that police exercise. We're not even embedding our incident commander with their incident commander. You know, you're looking at maybe after that incident has de-escalated, they've neutralized whatever they need to neutralize, then maybe you might get a police officer come to the command post and go from there. But once that's, 
neutralized, then it, it kind of turns over into to a mass casualty EMS event. Um, <clears throat> so, but it never felt like we were pounding our chest of who's in charge and, and, uh, I never felt any animosity with that at all. Matter of fact, we enjoyed going out to their training exercises and stuff like that. It's just seeing a different side of, of, uh, of, um, public service. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's important to note because a blanket statement that I hear pretty often is we don't stage anymore. We're, we sit in staging and people die. And there's a part of that that's that's true, but that's a blanket statement. It's kind of like, you know, we're going to do penciling, you know, to as we're pushing down a hallway. We'll just a little, just a little bit. Um, what we're talking about, you, your initial response, you, you, initial arriving companies, they could be there within a few minutes. The scene is still hot and active. You're still trying to wrap your head around what is actually going on. Law enforcement, same thing. You may have different uh, communication centers. You may have different CADs where law enforcement's got different notes than what your notes are. So it's, it's a tactical pause. And yes, it's staging, but it's not... It's not staging with the intent of, well, law enforcement's got to make the scene safe, and then we're going to go in. Um, I think it's important to, to note the delineation between that and we don't stage anymore. Um, we have to stage for there's, – there's a decent chance, depending on where it is, that we could be in the vicinity faster than law enforcement. I mean, if you're being dual dispatched, you know um, – some of the uh, some of the incidents that have uh, that have occurred, and you listen to the audio. Everybody got dispatched at the same time. Law enforcement fire everybody, and within thirty seconds, there's somebody, usually a chief officer, that calls dispatch and says, "Where's the command post?" It's uh, I don't I don't know. Um, we're staging. It's like everybody has been en route for like thirty seconds. That's that stuff's not known yet. Um, and it might be wherever we set it up. So, um, I think, I think that that's, uh, that's a good thing to point out the, uh, you talking about the, uh, warm zone corridor with the warm zone operations. Um, that's in, that's in NFPA 3000 where it discusses that very thing. And the way you described it is, is perfect. Um, and it's actually really, it's really telling that you guys were doing that and training for that 10 years before 3000 was even thought of before it was even initiated. Um, and that's a major, it's a major operational, major operational platform. Um, the resource packaging ahead of time. That's awesome. Um, designating different stations and companies that, uh, they get the extra training, they get the extra knowledge, maybe the extra equipment, and you know they're they're pre-staged and ready to go. Um, the RTF, the way RTF is defined by most people, the Rescue Task Force model. That's the tactically trained company 
embedded with law enforcement, at least a law enforcement in front, at least a law enforcement in the rear for a rear guard with firefighters or, or medics in the middle. And you're going into an area that's still the warm zone and you're searching for victims to remove them as a team. Based on what you were talking about with the warm zone corridor, what do you think is more feasible and effective today, now, with what we know now? I think we we rely heavily on those police to let us know, you know, what areas we can approach from. Uh, that's all the reason why we're staging. You know, you, you don't want to come around the corner. They don't know. Do they have somebody, you know, do they have m- multiple assailants and is somebody looking out the back when they're coming and they start taking shots at us? Um we stage and then we rely on the police to, to tell us you can come in this direction. We have this area covered. It's the warm corridor and uh, you can set up, you know, where we, where we can set up if we're going to make a patient uh, a casualty collection point. Um, a lot of times the police can drive that saying that if we find anybody, we're bringing them out here, you know, maybe side Bravo, we've got a door that comes from the maintenance area and we're going to be bringing them out that direction. So we can be, if that is the warm area where we can safely, relatively safe, safe, safely is what I say, set up, that's where we'll be ready to, um, to receive any casualties. Uh, the police are going to drive that because they're going to let us know what areas they have cleared and deemed safe. Now, so that's the ideal situation. We're relying on their input of where they need us to be. Um, they're the ones with the guns. They're the ones that are trying to neutralize whatever's happening. We can't do anything until we know we've got an area that we can start to work in that's uh, protected by law enforcement. And uh, one of the things that you brought up with the, with the rear guard when we're working, some of the other things that uh, incident commanders need to understand when you start setting up your triage areas, you're setting up your tarps or however you're setting it up, you need to have an armed police officer. It doesn't have to be a SWAT guy, but an armed police officer in that triage area to to quickly, and it may take more than one uh, officer, to quickly frisk every single victim that comes out of there because somebody might be an assailant. Somebody might have explosives on them. Someone might have a loaded fire on, on them. That's not for us to find. So very quickly, they're going to go through and they're going to make sure that not only is the scene a warm corridor, but the patients are safe for us to start care on. Um, like I said, in, in that, uh, that, that call out situation that was at the Discovery Building in Silver Spring several years ago, um, that dude had a, a suicide vest on uh, and it ended up detonating. Uh, that's what ended up killing him. Um, but uh, yeah, so you're, you're going to have to have a law enforcement present in your triage area as well. That's their job. They are there to make sure that the patients are safe to work on, but they're also there to, cover, to, to provide cover for us if it's more than one assailant. Somebody pops around the building and they're armed. They're there to take care to protect us as well. So that's something that the incident commanders are going to have to be contacting if they don't have direct contact with a police officer their communications or a police officer that's there in the, uh, the staging area uh, saying that, Hey, we're, we're setting this up here. We need to get at least two officers here. You need to make that happen right away. And um, you know, it, it uh, again, we haven't had to use it, but that that's the idea around it to make sure that it's still an active situation. It's still a relatively dangerous situation, 
where we're working on triage, but we need to make sure that the patients that we're working on are safe for us to work on. Sure. Um, kind of laying out a lot of different positions that need to be filled. Then I think if you're, if your go-to is a RTF model and we're not going into this facility unless there's, there's law, two law enforcement officers with us at a minimum, but the, the building is as you, you described, Hey, this area has been cleared. Um, a suspect has been engaged. There's 50 cops in the building. Every window door is covered, but fire's not going to move an inch until I got law enforcement embedded with me. Um, when you embed that RTF, that's taking officers away from doing those other critical functions um, that that are necessary. I, I think it's a measured risk, um, and I, I think that it's it's best for the patients. It's best for the for for the mitigation of the scene. And again, it's a um, it's a measured risk, just like in anything that we do. Uh, all of our careers is, is about managing risk. Um, and that, I think that's all that, uh, it's all that you need to look at when you're determining, you know, should we do this? Should we not? Um, it's situational dependent. I don't think that RTF needs to, is, is a broken concept that doesn't work, but I don't think it's a, as applicable as it, as it initially was in conception to be pre-staged special event. Absolutely. Um, protests, known things in advance to embed that, that RTF team. Absolutely. Um, but I think again, as you, as you had laid out, it's important to, to train to a warm zone operation, whether that's warm zone corridor, whether it's protected Island, whatever the circumstance may be, I think your best chance for saving lives is, is that it's doing the warm zone, the warm zone function. Um, the other thing that, uh, that you, you you leaned into a lot. It's not just about active shooter. I, any any type of violent incident, and a lot of of barricaded subjects, as you said, you know, can end up with a fire. It can either be the the suspect sets sets the place on fire. A lot of the non lethal weapons that law enforcement uses, depending on you know where the canister lands when they fire it, that can start a fire. Um, especially if it lands on like a piece of furniture, like a couch or a bed, uh, it emits sparks. It shoots stuff out. It's, 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 there's a decent chance it's going to start a fire. Um, whether it spreads is another matter. I think it's interesting. The back stretching five inch sucks just period. <laughs> Trying to do that under armed guard or law enforcement doing it in, in, in battle rattle, trying to trying to stretch five inch under that environment, I, I just I can't even fathom that. That that's going to suck really bad. Well, the, it was a little less of a suck because it was four inch, but it's still it's still a lot of hose. Uh, but we taught them. We taught them how to shoulder that hose. You know, take hundred hundred foot sections at a time. You know, maybe maybe hundred on your shoulder and dragging a hundred um, to to where you need to be. A lot of our 
downtown and urban areas um, and even suburban areas, your hydrants are every three to every 500 feet. So uh, you're close. And if it ends up being in a rural situation, then, you know, we're looking at tankers and, and stuff like that. But um, even, even if that place catches on fire um, and it's still an active situation where it'd be a shooter or whatever, uh, we're still not going to engage as, as fire service wise, even if we have cover of police, because they're not stopping those bullets and, and we're not putting ourselves in that particular situation. Um, but we did train the police to, to stretch lines, to stretch long lines, like uh, a 200 foot pre-connect to be able to add another 200 foot on it to make it, uh, you know, a 400 foot uh, pre-connect and then how we could pump that. Um, but, uh, and then teaching them how to, you know, like you said, stretch that four inch if we had to make that hydrant connection or, or clear an area where we could get that engine a little bit closer. Um, obviously, we didn't teach them how to drive the engine or how to pump the engine or anything like that. But uh, Oh, come on. Why yeah. not? But, uh, you know, we got it to the point where, you know, they could get water in place or get lines in place to where we could pump those lines for them. Um, and we taught them how to, how to handle an attack line, how to handle you know, our blitz fire or that portable monitor nozzle. But, um, you know, it hasn't come down to that, but uh, we are prepared for that. And, and, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier about, you know, who's going to get on the scene first, it depends on how the call is dispatched. If it's dispatched as a robbery or a hostage situation or a, a shooter, you know, something or fire. like that. Well, even if it's not a fire, just if that's the way it's dispatched, police are getting dispatched that long before that comes over to the fire side and then we get dispatched on it. Um, so that law enforcement component's already either already there and have been there for a little bit or they're en route and almost going to be there before we're ever thought about uh, being called. Um, if they get a call for just like an armed person in a building, fire department's not getting a call for that. Um, once that gentleman barricades himself in a a – in a, in a room or in an apartment or something like that, and they can't get them out, then they're going to call fire rescue and just say, Hey, we need uh, you know, a fire engine and an ambulance up here. We've got a, uh, uh, you know, please call out. We've got a barricade situation or whatever. Um, they'll dispatch the closest units, like I said earlier, and then station 23, which is the one that is, that does the training with the police. They'll simultaneously be dispatched and they'll head that direction. And once they get there, they'll meet up with the officer of the, uh, the other company that's there saying, we're relieving you. You guys can go back. And then uh, then company 23 would stay there um, for the duration. And, and um, but uh, a lot of those situations are already moving forward before we even get there. Uh, they call it an active shooter situation. Even if they say people are shot, um, the police are getting that right away. As you know, with the fire department, you got to hit the, pay, the tones, you got to type, type it in the computer, got to alert the stations. Um, right away, the police are just getting their little cop box tone and they're, they're going out. Now, one of the things that we uh, did in our battalion chief vehicles, our command vehicles, is that we have the capability of not only listening, but also talking on their police uh, radios. Or, or to, We have those, those talk groups in our command radios for the fire apparatus. They have it on their portables. They can listen, but they can't transmit. So, one of the things I always did, we always had one of our radios in, a, in our battalion vehicle. We had uh, four mobile radios and one portable radio in the battalion vehicle. One of those mobile radios was always on the police dispatch channel for the jurisdiction that we're running in, whether in Montgomery, it was Silver Spring or Wheaton or Gaithersburg, Germantown. Um, we would be listening to that, that particular talk group in that particular response area. 
Um, and uh, the best thing about it was when they get building fires that come in, please get them right away. So I was like, hey, we got a building fire. We get we get start rolling out, you know, two, 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 uh, 20 to 30 seconds before it's ever dispatched because um, the police are just calling and just say, just, just fire rescue with a building fire. And then they give the address. Um, so it's similar to that. When they get their call outs, they'll have their uh, their alert tone that come across the radio. And then it's just dispatch. Obviously, they don't have station alerting for the police. So. They're usually, if they're not on the road, if they're on the road, if they're not there, they're there a little bit way, be- I'd say way before we get there. So the situation's already fluid moving forward. We just kind of stage and we rely on our communications to contact their communication. They're in the same room um, to figure out what they need from us. They know, they'll know we're on the scene. They'll call and say fire rescue's on the scene. They're staging at wherever. And then they know that that, that asset's there. And if they say, hey, we've got multiple victims here. Um, they, they can, their communications can call ours back. They'll call the units that are stayed and saying, police advise that they have six, seven victims. Okay. All right. Well, I've only got one engine and an ambulance. So I'm going to need, you know, maybe three more paramedic engines and two or three more transport units. And then we can start our, uh, our triage stuff once we move up. That makes sense. It, it does. Um, we get dual dispatched with law enforcement if there's a victim. So if there's, if we call it 1075 hit, it means a GSW. If, if there's a report of shots been hit, they dual dispatch. Yes, it takes a little bit longer, but that's where we have a cop dispatch, we have a fire dispatcher. The call taker sends it to both. They dispatch them both. Right. And the fire, the fire dispatcher always says, scene is not secure. Law enforcement is in route. And you know, then, you know, um, yeah. I think I like your guys' way a little better. Um, that, that is, it, it works the same way in, in our jurisdictions as well. Like if they put out, you know, for one shot, one stabbed, um, police and fire being dispatched at the same time, chances are there are times, uh, and I'd say probably about eight out of 10 times fire rescue is going to be there first because the police, you know, there's only maybe three or four cars per beat. Um, that's a large area to cover. Um, but we know our communication is going to come back and say, uh, understand the scene is not secure. And that officer is going to say, okay, we're going to stage at whatever, or they might come back and say, police are on the scene, scene secure. They need you to come in or, or whatever. Um, but the good thing is, is that we're monitoring their police radio as well. So we can hear what's going on. Um, but, uh, yeah, our, our communications will let us know if the scene is secure or not. If they don't know, if they just say we're not sure right now, automatically we're staging, you know, until the police confirm that the scene's secure. I mean, that's just common sense. But yeah, uh, yeah, there are there are issues where you get reported one shot, you know, a fight in progress, uh, assault, you know, an assault in progress. Scene is not secure. We stage and, and we'll, we'll call on the radio, make sure of it. You know, this is where we're staging. Everybody knows where to stop. Um and and uh, then we'll wait for police to come back and say scene is secure. So, but uh, but for those active shooter situations where it started off as an active shooter, um, the police are already there. And then when they find out they've got victims or people are hurt or whatever, then they're going to say, "Hey, any fire rescue here? We've got whatever." And then they'll dispatch it. Sure. Um, transferring, moving a little bit to um, to your area of expertise and what you. Uh, which you commonly speak and teach on the command piece. And you'd mentioned uh, 
you know, your, your radio package in your, in your battalion vehicles. Um, the average law enforcement officer does not have that radio package. Um, and we found that if the law enforcement officer gets in the vehicle with you, um, that can get cumbersome pretty quick because your radio is going off and their radio is going off and you're in a confined area and you're trying to relay a message. You're trying to listen to something at the same time that they're talking and their radio is going off and it's, and it gets kind of nuts. So, um, but it's, it's good that you, we can monitor multiple channels. The average beat cop has a portable and they're mobile in their car. That's it. So they can monitor two channels and that, that could be their tack channel that they're on. And it could be, you know, a dispatch channel or something different. So that's, it's a unique, it's a unique circumstance and challenge to overcome. Um, how do you see law enforcement dealing with command of these multi-agency, multi-platform events? And you alluded to it, to some thoughts a little bit about, um, you know, the first two officers on scene uh, that they're in charge. But how do you see it developing? Because we get a pretty good command presence in, you know, the fire SUV and everybody knows fire SUV is in charge. That's not necessarily the way a lot of law enforcement agencies work, a vast majority, especially if you're not in a major metropolitan area. What do we do with that? The uh, like you and I talked earlier today, um, the way we run command and, and I'll be the first to say it, fire and rescue runs incident command very well. Um, you know, barring that whole uh, where you get into that that incident management system where you're going into multiple uh, uh, operational periods where you're actually going to have a, a, an actual type three, type two, type one team coming in. Barring that, when it comes to just these type five incidents where fire and rescue is coming in, the battalion chiefs are coming in, we do command very well because we use it every day. So we know what our role is. Um, the police don't use that type of command every day. They're trained in it. Um, but like we said earlier, when that first police officer gets on the scene, that's the point of contact. Um, and he's got, he or she's got a lot of things going on right now, you know, you know, I'm, uh, do I have an assailant? Where is what's going on? Where am I directing the rest of my police officers to? Um, what information do I have? So that person's overwhelmed right away. They're not pulling out their tactical worksheets and they're not writing all their stuff down of officer so and so. And then I've got car of this coming and then car. That, they're not doing that. And uh, you're not going to see that command structure develop on the police side until a little ways into this incident, you might end up getting that mobile command post that arrives there that, uh, you know, the big mobile command post that has the phones and the, the radios and workstations and all that, whether it's a command bus or, or whatever, um, that's where you'll start to see that command structure start to develop. Um, the uh, the SWAT or that special operations, they're running their people. You know, the beat cops not running those guys. You know, they're either taking care of the perimeter, making sure that things are safe out in that direction, making sure that we don't have civilians coming through. But that special operation mode of police, whether it's SWAT or EST, whatever you want to call it, SRT, um, they're running their show. So they have their officers 
running that. So you kind of have two different systems that are, that are running. As far as where's the fire department plug in, we don't really plug into that until we start, till the situation is starting to de-escalate or we have areas that we can work in. That battalion chief is going to be running those fire and rescue units. Um, they may call communications to tell police that we're pulling people out this way. We've got, you know, this is where we've got things set up or, or whatever, just so they know um, that, uh, you know, how we're operating. But um, you're not going to see that unified command right away. Now, one of the things that you and I talked about a while ago in, in Montgomery County, we have the, the metro system, the subway system. Um, when I was running as a battalion chief, if we were running, you know, one that was struck by a train or a smoking insulator or some type of incident that wasn't necessarily police driven, but more fire driven, um, the first Metro cop that got on the scene, I was saying that guy and say, you're in my car because they got a direct line to their communication center. They've got all the cameras in the subway. They can see what's going on and our guys haven't gotten down there yet. So I can get real time intel from that police officer talking to his a communication center where they've got cameras and phones and all that stuff going on down there. So I would grab that guy and embed him in my command post right away. And I would tell him, I said, Hey, we're going to run a unified command. You're running your officers, feed me the Intel that I need so I can direct my guys to where they need to be. It always worked out well. Um, I was getting quick Intel from that police officer because I was getting it straight from um, the, the OCC or their communication center um, of, of what they were seeing in real time. Um, so in situations like that, that works out really well. Um, <clears throat> highway incidents, things like that, hazmat incidents. Uh, you may pull a police officer into your vehicle to make sure that we've got roads shut down in certain areas. Um, you know, we might have to get civilians away from areas, keep people away. We might have to have evacuation routes, things like that. So you may have to have an officer in there. But, but these fluid, violent scenes um, I, as an incident commander, I probably be, wouldn't, wouldn't be looking for an officer to get into my vehicle, um, because it's a street cop who probably is not sure what's going on because they're operating on their own tack channels, the, the SWAT guys. So they're probably not sure what they're doing. So I'm not getting that Intel of what's going on in there. Um, so I wouldn't be looking for that police officer, but I would be calling my communications to talk to their communications if we need any updates. A lot of times there's really no reason to talk on the radio other than staging your resources, your EMS and fire resources until it's needed. Um, I'm running that part of the incident. Um, and then the police will come back and say, situation has been neutralized. Um, they're safe. You're warm corridors from here to here. You can start coming in. We're pulling patients back now. And then we can go ahead and start implementing that all without having that police officer in the vehicle. We can do that via radio. Um, if it gets into this larger situation um, where we're going into multiple operational periods, you know, for, for a high profile or a high casualty um, situation, then, then that's where you'll get that mobile command post, that bus or whatever come out. And you may have fire rescue injected into that. Or once the fire rescue portion is over, there's no fire, there's no more victims. It's now the scene is the police is seen for them to do their investigation. So at the most, maybe they might need lights, um, you know, or things like that. But other than that, it's uh it's kind of a split system. We have that communication, but those scenes of violence are more of a split system of, uh, you know, the large ones, you know, the, the fight in progress, the stabbing or all that, you know, the cops are usually standing around. We usually have them give us a hand 
either keep the family away from us or, you know, help us get the patient out or something, stuff like that. Uh, funny story, when I was much younger uh, as a firefighter, we ran a shooting and the police were already there. And when we pulled up, they come running out saying, you need to get upstairs right now. Is it safe? They said, yep. So we get up there and somebody was shot, um, not doing so well. We yanked him out, got him in there, told the cop, you need to get in the back of the medic unit with me. Um, my medics were working on this particular patient. Patient went into cardiac arrest. We started to bag him. Well, they were shot in the side. Well, it ended up obviously nicking the lung. So I told the cop, put some gloves on and made him put his hand over top of the wound so we could ventilate. I thought that cop was going to get sick. <laughs> so funny story, but uh, a newfound respect for what we do. Definitely mad respect for what they do and what they have to put up with. But uh, all in all, the police and the fire in the Washington metro area, we work really well together. Um, there's none of this, you know, back and forth of, of, uh, of, of cop versus fireman thing. Matter of fact, I remember multiple times coming into work in the morning as a battalion chief and they'd be in the back parking lot taking care of the reports. I'm like, bro, why don't you come on inside, get some free coffee and, uh, you know, come sit down at the kitchen table and, and do your report. And then it's like, I got donuts, you know, but uh, <laughs> you would always open the firehouse to the police. because They're the ones that are there to protect us and make sure that we're safe. So it was never a rivalry. I never felt that rivalry between police and fire. It was more of a mutual respect for what they do versus what we do. No, it's a yeah. little off topic, but you got to throw that out there. We, no, we, I, we I, love the cops. My dad was a cop, retired police officer. I didn't have the patience to do what he did. So I became a fireman. <clears throat> um, well, I mean, my, my affliction for law enforcement is pretty well known. Um, I, I think it's good because it it speaks to it speaks to the piece about command. Yeah, the, the task level ground pounders it, they need to have a deep, a good relationship with each other because there there needs to be a lot of trust. We're we're in some some hairy situations. Um, command is just is just as much for different reasons. So you have to feel comfortable. You have to have a relationship with the people you're going to be running command with um, a car accident, a car accident with a fatality on the interstate. How long is that going to affect traffic? How long is law enforcement going to be there? Five, six hours. They got to do the whole reconstruction and all that other stuff. An active shooter with a dozen fatalities. They're there for weeks, months, um, you will be going into multiple operational uh, periods. Command will be, as you said, wh whether fire is involved in that or not, it's, it's going to be situational dependent and it's definitely not going to be for the same amount of time. Um, but I think we're asking a lot of, we're asking a lot of the guys and gals that are riding the, the, the command vehicle these days, the ones that are in the car, the, the battalion truck, the fire SUV, whatever you want to call it. It's beyond for, for active shooter. It's beyond the stop the kill and stop the die and rapidly transport. Um, yeah, there's that, but now there's an incident assistance center. There's, you know, a reunification area within the assistance center. There's um, the media liaising, as you said before, staging areas. 
there's a whole litany of stuff beyond stop the kill and stop the die and rapidly transport that is saddled with command. Um, making sure area hospitals are prepared to receive victims, making sure that they've been notified to um, activate their surge plans, various different things. We're asking that that incident commander to have way more than a 50,000 foot view over their scene. Um, we're talking like Google Earth, massive. Um, you're trying to control things that are miles away from your incident scenes. How the hell we deal with that? You are correct that there's so much more of it that's put on the shoulders of, of incident commanders, battalion chiefs, uh, assistant chiefs, um, people that are running those those command vehicles. There's a ton of things that are put on their shoulder on their shoulders now. It's not like it used to be. You know, you go in there, you yell and scream on the radio, fire goes out, everybody goes home. Um, that whole reunification, you know, if, God forbid if it's a school, you know, where where are we going to put the parents? You know, we're going to have to have things over there to make sure parents aren't that aren't coming into the scene um do we have the uh the resources coming in ems units um enough ems units or mobile mobile ambulance bus call down to the hospitals how many people can you take i may need to activate a hospital that's you know 40 50 60 miles away that i'm not going to transport to and have that hospital deal with the local hospitals of this is what you have coming and they take that that emergency hospital communication piece so now they're coordinating with the hospitals that are going to be receiving patients and now i can talk to that specific hospital they're not being overwhelmed with patients like the other six seven hospitals are um right. you're, you're setting up those uh casualty collection points and, and how many people do we have um you're having to liaison with the press. So you got to make sure your PIOs out there. And if they're not there right away, well, it might be you, um, or hopefully you've got a senior chief coming to, to be that senior advisor. Um, then you're, you're talking, you know, the length of time that you're going to be out there. There's, there's just a ton of things. Haven't even gotten into the SISM point or, or the, uh, the, the health and wellness checkup of the, you know, of the first responders and the things that they saw, how to decompress that. Um, you know, looking, maybe even looking into, hey, I'm going to have to put, you know, 12, 15 people off duty because of the impact of this particular situation because of the stress debriefing. I've got to make sure that I get another shift hired back in. Um, so there's a ton of things that are put on these incident commanders. And it's important for these captains that want to promote into these roles. It's not just about flicking the lights on and driving 100 miles an hour down the road and yelling on the radio and, and tactical worksheet. There's a lot that goes into it. And to be honest with you, a lot of it's on the job training. You know, a lot of it is, is asking questions like, well, if this happens, what do you think I should do? Talking to other battalion chiefs, talking to your senior staff, your assistant chiefs, your deputy chiefs, um, you know, I've never been in that situation before. What do I do if this happens? Where do I find this information? Who do I call? You know, um, you know, what resources do I have available right away um, to, to, to help me uh, mitigate the situation? Um, you're talking about massive fatalities on an active shooter where you're going to have that police department there for weeks, maybe months. You may be even looking at activating a type three incident management team uh, coming from your state or coming from multiple states to set up tents, to have planning section chiefs and incident commanders for that incident 
uh, bringing just maybe tents, maybe just bringing the logistics portion of serving food, bathrooms, all this stuff weighs into how long are we going to be here? What do you need from fire rescue? And if I don't have the answer, where do I go to get that? Um, I've said it a thousand times as an incident commander. It's okay not to know something, but know where you can go to find that information out. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it, there is a lot that's put on the shoulders of incident commanders. It's not just about, you know, building fires and house fires. It's, uh, it goes into some pretty, uh, um, taxing, uh, manpower taxing and mental taxing of, uh, of these incident commanders of how best to handle these. And I need more resources and, and, you know, I need to get, you know, maybe another chief in the car with me to start working on that stuff. Maybe multiple chiefs in the car. I might need four chiefs in the car to start handling different parts. You know, as you start making somebody your operations section chief, your logistics planning, you know, it could get into finance. Like I've got to feed these guys. They've been on the scene for six, seven hours. I got to feed these guys, bathrooms, fuel, you know, and throwing a bunch of stuff out there, but this goes beyond just that single active shooter. How long are we going to be there? And what's our footprint there with, you know, with fire and rescue? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's fair that if you have a formalized incident management team that, that comes in a, in a larger vehicle, like a uh, walk and rescue type big vehicle. I think it's fair that if at a report of an active shooter and you get a confirmation that you have victims to call them immediately um, and get them rolling, their, their mobile time could be two hours just to get on the street. And, and it's likely that you're going to need them. Um, you had mentioned the, you know, God forbid, if it was a school, we had the Blythewood high school here got one of the doxing hoax phone calls um, a year, year and a couple months ago. I think it was late August, early September. Um, that within probably 30 to 45 minutes, it was determined, hey, this is a hoax. There was 15 to 20 other, other schools in the state that got hit. So the call came out at like, I want to say 10, 10, 30, something like that at four, five o'clock in the afternoon, there were parents still lined up in their cars out on the main road, waiting for their turn to get into the school to check in at the football stadium and pick their kid up because they shoved, they, they shuffled all the students from the school into the football stadium at 1030 in the morning didn't let them go back into the school and they sat there for hours upon hours upon hours in late August, early September. I think there was a solid plan for picking up and a solid plan for keeping people contained in the process of doing that. But the circumstance of that was horrific. Um, how are you feeding these kids? How are you, how are you making sure they stay hydrated? I mean, because you're out in South Carolina. In South Carolina, the end of August, beginning of September, it's brutal. It's Africa hot out. <laughs> so it's, there's those concerns, but that alone, nobody died, nobody was shot, nobody got arrested. The exigent phase of that was over in about an hour, maybe a little less. But the end result of that, 
what was left to be done was hours and hours and hours of chaos of just mass you know i need to get to my kid we had we had a greater chance of of a violent incident or someone getting arrested from the parents getting out of their cars and walking up and saying i'm not waiting anymore because i've been in the same spot for an hour and a half and i haven't moved my vehicle those those interactions of go back to your vehicle okay just everybody's fine that was was a bigger concern so I think uh, I think we're putting a lot on on the expectation of that initial incident commander. I think that's very very uh, valid to say. You need more chiefs. You need to start breaking things into small pieces as soon as as soon as humanly possible, and get some stuff off of your off your big plate. Because at the end of this, it's going to be hey, incident commander, did you do X, Y, or Z? Did you set this up? Did you do that up? No, I focused on stop the kill and stop the dying rapidly transport. Okay, that was cool for the first hour. What about after that? And super important was what you said about uh, about the people on shift. We live in our communities for the most part. Um, I know there's some that, that travel great distance to work, but we live in our communities. The likelihood of there being some type of relationship between the responders and the victims outside of that actual incident is high. And you may have wrecked a ship. You may, you may have taken out an entire battalion of personnel that they're, they're done. Um, just a school, a school incident alone. What are you going to care? You'll be there for a couple hours. Hey, go back to the station. Um, you know, be ready to run alarms and fires and wrecks for the rest of the night. That's, that's not going to work. Um, so yeah, how, how do you deal with that? Um, I think that's uh, I think that's an excellent point. You know, one uh, of the one of the things you talked about with with the school, um, <clears throat> the most important thing as an incident commander is I want to get that whoever the liaison is of that school, whether it be the vice principal, the assistant vice principal, guidance counselor, somebody. I need that person at my vehicle right away. Um, my way to deal with, and I understand what you're saying. You know where. They're letting the kids out of the school for the day. Parents need to come pick them up, but you got to go to a certain area. You got to sign them out. One of the easy ways to alleviate that is to bus the kids to another school far away from that incident. And then in my county where I live, we get text messages about things that are happening. So if you have that capability or a roll call phone, an automated phone call to all the parents saying that there's been an incident. Uh, the incident was, you know, at, at this school, we need all parents to go to such and such school to pick up your kids. You'll have to sign your kids out. So that way you're taking everybody away from where that school is, that where the situation is, whether it was a hoax or not, and you're putting them into another area which is secure and you can ride in, you can go get your kid, and then you can leave um, where you're not waiting out on the road because you've got so much police activity and 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 it's limited. You're actually away from the, the, the scene. You may have to drive a little further out, maybe to another high school and the kids will be in a bus and they'll be in the front of this high school and, and you'll have to go and get them and, and whatnot. That's an alternative, you know, get the parents away from the situation, away from the scene where they can go pick their kids up from somewhere else. They'll be bused to you. So it's important to get that, that uh, whoever you're going to be the liaison with, with the school, that's all done through pre-planning and talk to that person right away. 
what's what are we doing to get get these students out of here? Here's my suggestion. Can we make this happen? And and uh, at least that way they're not sitting out in a football field in South Carolina of summer. And it, there's unforeseen consequences associated with it later. Traffic accidents, backing up traffic um, near a major interstate, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. That's not good. Um, there's ancillary things that are going to occur. We may have terminated our portion of the command. Law enforcement may have terminated their portion of the command. Um, but you still have a significant impact that you're going to have ancillary events to. And and it's going to suck. Um, I think, uh, yeah, the little the little red recording thing up in the top-hand corner says that we've been talking for just a little over an hour. Um, and I find that most people don't want to hear my voice beyond beyond an hour. So um, closing thoughts. Um, and please tell people about uh, your show that you do um, and how to how to access that through your Twitter account and any other places that you post it. Yeah, just just some parting thoughts. You know, if if you have the the aspirations of, of wanting to promote into the management role, whether it be battalion chief, assistant chief, uh, you know, leaving the tactical realm and going into the strategic realm, there's a lot of moving parts to that, and it's impossible to prepare you for everything that can happen because we know the public just gets themselves in situations. But uh, ask questions, do research. Um, you know. We, we say FDIC all the time. That is a huge place to network, to talk to people that may have lived this stuff. And then you can, all these instructors are approachable. You got a question, you ask them, they're going to give you the information they have. If they don't have that answer, but you know where you can get it, you, we'll lead them in the right direction. So, you know, if you're looking for information, uh, you know, about becoming a, a, an incident commander or uh, dealing with, you know, working with the police, like how did this program start, you know, Ask the questions, you know, don't be afraid to, to reach out to people that, uh, that may have some information with this, uh, in, in this, in this, uh, type of, of, of environment or in, in these situations or, or with these collaborations with the police, you know, don't, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'm, I'm always available. Um, you know, we, we do the, the politics and tactics with Frank Ritchie. Um, that we, you can hear that on, on fire engineering radio. Well, it's actually video now, even though we have a face for radio, um, it's, it's on video now. Um, but, uh, I do side alpha leadership. That's my personal podcast. And we've talked to all different kinds of people. Um, but I can be reached at, uh, at, um, at info at side alpha leadership.com. Um, you can fire me an email and, uh, or you can visit my website at sidealphaleadership.com and you can reach me through there if you have any questions or, or anything what pertains to what we did in Montgomery County or, you know, with incident command, stuff like that. I'm very passionate about it because I didn't know anything about incident command when I got promoted and it was all really on the job training. Um, luckily I had some really good men season mentors that, that guided me and put up with the questions that I was asking. And what I found out is that I was asking less and less questions as time went on. Um, well, use your resources, network with people, talk to people, especially people that are in busy departments that run a lot of calls. Um, running a lot of calls doesn't mean you're necessarily the best. So make sure you know who you're talking to. Um, but yeah, don't hesitate to network and reach mm -hmm. out and, uh, and learn. That's the biggest thing. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> well, 
thank you so much for for coming on. Um, I appreciate it. I appreciate you dedicating your time. Um, you consistently consistently show that you are dedicated to our service by using a lot of your personal time for stuff. So I I, I know how valuable that is. I appreciate that um, and extend my thanks to the to the family for letting us borrow you for for an hour. I appreciate you having me on here. I, I I enjoy being on the other end of podcasts. That way I don't have to plan it. I can just talk. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Um, so at that hour, um, my closing piece, the, uh, the circumstances overseas with Israel and Palestine, regardless of your opinions of what is right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, we're, we're in a very charged environment and there's a lot of tension going on right now. Um, you, you hear this a lot, especially around the military. Be, be resilient. Um, pay very particular attention to your surroundings. Um, for, for my brothers and sisters in fire, EMS, and law enforcement, um, be, be prepared. Uh, to respond to whatever may come come across the radio, uh, I have concerns. So um, let's look out for one another. Let's uh, keep our ear to the ground, network, um, and be careful. Thanks for tuning in to Scenes of Violence. I'm Steve Hamilton. Thank you, uh, David Polikoff, and we will see you next time. The Fire Store, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Fire Store makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Fire Store's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Fire Store's goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more.